Over the course of human history, our world has, has witnessed some terrible, some awful atrocities. But what we need to understand is that these atrocities aren't just a part of our ancient history. They're a part of our modern history. Between 1939 and 1945, the, the Nazis under Adolf Hitler exterminated 6 million Jews. They exterminated them through gassing them, through starving them, shooting them, doing experiments on them. One million of the six million were children. Two million of the six million were women. Six million Jews exterminated, eradicated from the face of the earth. March the 15th, 1968, America was at war with, with Vietnam. And on that day... Charlie Company received orders from higher up that they were to attack and destroy a village called My Lai. It was a village where there were supposed to be Viet Cong or Viet Cong sympathizers. When they got there, they didn't find the Viet Cong. They didn't find Viet Cong sympathizers. They found old men and women and children. But they destroyed them nevertheless. Charlie Company went in and raped and tortured and killed 500 old men, women, and children before the massacre was stopped. That was us, the United States. Over a 100-day period in 1994, 500,000 to 1 million Tutsis were exterminated by the Hutu majority in Rwanda. 500,000 to 1 million people killed over a 100-day period because they were a different people group, genocide. And we've seen that over and over since then. Now, when we read those kind of things, when we hear those kind of things, they break our heart, don't they? We, we think to ourselves, who could ever do something so barbaric, so wicked, so evil? And yet, when we read the Bible, we read commands given to us by God Himself to kill every living thing. To completely destroy everything. To show no mercy. When we hear those kind of things from people, we think that they are barbaric, but then we read that God tells us to do that. I want you to listen to three passages of Scripture, one in Deuteronomy, one in Joshua, and one in 1 Samuel. Deuteronomy 20, verses 16 and 17, it says this, In those towns that the Lord your God has given you as a special possession, destroy every living thing. You must completely destroy the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, just as the Lord your God commanded you. Earlier on in chapter 7, God said you must completely destroy them. You must make no treaties with them. You must show them no mercy. In Joshua chapter 6, after the destruction of Jericho, this is what we read about that battle. It says, they completely destroyed everything in it with their swords. Men, women, 
young and old, cattle, sheep, goats, donkeys. They destroyed everything, men and women, young and old. And then in 1 Samuel chapter 15, God is speaking to Saul and he gives Saul a command and this is what he says. It says, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies has declared. I have decided to settle accounts with the nation of Amalek for opposing Israel when they came from Egypt. Now go and completely destroy the entire Amalekite nation. Men, women, children, babies, cattle, sheep, goats, camels, and donkeys. When we hear those kind of words from anyone else, we would automatically assume that the person uttering them is evil. They are wicked. They certainly shouldn't be admired, and they certainly don't deserve to be worshipped. And yet here is God, the God that we come together to worship every single Sunday, who are uttering these words. And so the question we have to ask is this. How can we reconcile this God of love who who gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins and this God who commands his people to destroy every living thing? I mean, is this one of God's dirty little secrets? Is, Is this one of the skeletons in God's closet? Is this one of those things that that God would rather us not know about? Is this one of those things that God is ashamed of? That that God wants to keep on the down low? That God doesn't want us to talk about in church? Or is there something more to it? Richard Dawkins, who is our generation's most famous atheist, sums up the attitude of many about God When he says this, he says, the God of the Old Testament is a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a malevolent bully. Is that who God is? Particularly the God of the Old Testament? Charles Templeton, who we quoted last week, said this. He said, the God of the Old Testament is utterly unlike the God believed in by most practicing Christians. His justice is by modern standards outrageous. He is biased, vindictive, and jealous. So what about it? Is God vindictive? Is God bloodthirsty? Is God a malevolent bully? Or is there something more to these stories about God's judgment? Well, there are four ways that we can approach these kind of passages when we open up God's Word. The first is to simply tear them out of our Bible. I mean, we come to them and we don't like them, and so we tear them out. Did you know that's what Thomas Jefferson did? One of our presidents, one of the founding fathers? He was a deist, but he didn't believe in the God of the Bible. And so when he came to these kind of passages in the Old Testament, when he came to passages about miracles in the New Testament, he would literally tear them out of his Bible. And Thomas Jefferson comprised a Bible 
consisting of about 90 pages. And that's what some people do. When they come to a passage they don't like or they don't understand, they, they simply tear it out of their Bible. Another way that we can handle these passages is simply to pretend they aren't there. We avoid them. If we come to something we don't understand or we have a hard time with, we just gloss over it. When we start reading it, we go, ooh, I don't like that. And so we simply avoid it. But can we do that? I mean, if we believe that the entire Bible is God's Word, if we believe that the Bible is true from cover to cover, can we simply avoid those passages that are tough? Can we simply gloss over those passages that are difficult for us to understand? Well, we can't do that. And then there are other people that come to passages like this and, and they begin to have a progressive revelation about God when it comes to the Bible. They believe that God gives us a progressive revelation of himself from the beginning of the Bible to the end. So in other words, when we read about the God of the New Testament, that's God, but it's not a good picture of God. It's not a complete picture of God. It's only a partial picture of God. And, and as the Bible moves on and we get to the Gospels and we see Jesus, we see a complete picture of God. Is, is that what the Bible says? I mean, is it that the Old Testament picture of God is an incomplete picture of God and, and yet when we get to the New Testament picture of God, we see what God is really like? Is it that the Old Testament picture of God shows him as this bully, this harsh God, but then Jesus comes and straightens everything out? Is, is that what we're to believe? It's not what Jesus believed. The Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words... The God that we read about in the Old Testament is the same God that we read about in the New Testament. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Jesus is the revelation, the perfect revelation of the Old Testament God. So what do we do? What do we do when we come to these passages that are hard for us to understand? What do we do when we come to these passages of Scripture that make us bristle, that make us feel uneasy, to be honest, that make us feel ashamed that that's even in our Bible. Oh, I love what R.C. Sproul said. He said, among the countless nuggets of wisdom I've received over the years from my father is this bit of gold. When you're reading your Bible and you come across something that makes you uncomfortable, resist the temptation to simply move on to something else. Where the Bible makes us uncomfortable is precisely where we need to slow down. It is compelling evidence of a specific weakness. When our thoughts or feelings bristle under God's word, he is right and we are wrong. Did you get that? And so when we come to those passages of scripture that that calls us to pause, that we don't understand, that calls the hair on the back of our neck to stand up. Do we just move on or do we camp out and discover what it is that God is trying to teach us? Well, I believe we have to camp out if we believe that the entirety of God's Word is indeed God's Word. And so as we 
move on in this and try to make some sense out of some of these passages, let me give you a couple of things. First of all, let me remind you that it is never our job to answer for God. God is God. And God doesn't need us to answer for Him. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me to explain what He does. What God does is always good. What God does is always right. And it doesn't matter whether you understand it or I understand it. He's God and we aren't. But when it comes to God, God wants us to accurately and correctly speak about Him. Does that make sense? And so if we are going to say something about God, we need to make sure that we are speaking truth in regard to God's Word. And so here are some things that you need to understand. First of all, even if God did command the destruction of every single Canaanite, every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every baby, God is justified in all He does. And that makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? But it's a fact. If God did command the destruction of everyone, every adult, every teenager, every baby, God is still justified in what He does. Why? Because God is God and you're not. Does that make sense? He is the creator of all and He is the one who gives life to all. And the one who gives life has the right to take life whenever he wants to. By the way, you need to understand that the Bible says all life is a gift from God. You are here as a gift from God. When you die, regardless of how you die, it is because God has chosen for you to cease to live as far as we know it. God who gives life is the one who has the right to take life. The truth is God is God and you are not. And there will always be a gap, a big gap, between God and what we know about God, what we believe about God, and what we understand about God. There will always be that gap. That's why the Bible says the secret things belong to God, those things we don't understand. And the revealed things belong unto man. And so the first thing you need to understand as we look at this passage is this. If this passage is indeed saying that God ordered the destruction of everyone, God is just in what he does. Last week we repeated a saying that some of you have known for a long time. God is good all the time, all the time God is good. God is good all the time, all the time. God is good. And though we may not understand God and we may not sometimes understand God's ways, God is good. Now the next thing you need to understand is this. These cities that the Israelites went in and they were commanded to destroy were not population centers. They were military strongholds. Most archaeologists and historians tell us that there would have been no civilian population in these cities. And if there were, by the time the Israelites got to these cities, 
the um, civilian population would have already left. And by the way, you need to understand that when Israel went into Canaan, they were not some organized army coming in and taking over. They were a group of slaves. They had no military. They had no armor. They had no weaponry. They had nothing. They had been slaves for hundreds of years, and now they were going into the promised land. It wasn't like Israel was this Goliath going against David, who was this small, insignificant nation. No, Israel was David, and they were going up against Goliath. And so these cities were not, pop were not population centers. They were military strongholds. Paul Copeland, in his book, His God and Moral Monster, Paul Copeland is, is one of the premier Christian apologists of our day. This is what he said. He said, all the archaeological evidence indicates that no civilian populations existed at Jericho, I, or any other city mentioned in Joshua. And we know where, see, God calling his people to go into the land and go from tent to tent, systematically destroying everyone. And so as they attacked, they were attacking military strongholds. They weren't attacking population centers. But some of you are going to say, well, what about that phrase, to utterly destroy, destroy all the men, women, boys and girls, the children, the babies, the animals, and everyone else? What about that? And That's a good question. So let me ask you a question. How many of you watched some football yesterday? Watched some football? I watched more football than I should have watched. And I enjoyed watching football. And so let's just suppose we're talking about football for just a minute. And, and I said, man, South Carolina, Clemson, Oklahoma, Alabama, totally destroyed. They annihilated. They killed Coastal, Furman, Florida Atlantic, Louisville. Well, what if I said that to you? Man, they... They annihilated them. They destroyed them. They killed them. Would you know what I was talking about? You would know exactly what I was talking about. But let's suppose that I posted that on Facebook. And 500 years later, somebody is coming and reading the history of Facebook. And they are reading that, that Alabama played Louisville. And they annihilated them. They destroyed them. They killed them on the field. Do you think that maybe, just maybe, some of the people reading that would, would maybe think, whoa, wow, what did they do? Did they take that team and, and make them stand on the middle of the field and, and then they, they killed, they destroyed each and every one of them? Is that what they did? Is there the possibility that there could be that mistake? Well, what you need to understand is Almost every historian tells us that the language that is used here is found seven times in the Old Testament, by the way. Utterly destroy, totally kill. It's found seven times in the Old Testament. It is a phrase that was used throughout the ancient world to describe victory. When you would win a, a victory, you would totally destroy, you would annihilate. In 840 B.C., a Moabite king said this about Israel. They said, Israel has utterly perished for always. 
Did you get that? This Moabite king in 840 B.C. said Israel has been utterly perished. They have been wiped from the face of the earth forever and always. Now was Israel utterly destroyed? Did they perish? No. Israel is still here today, isn't it? Israel wasn't destroyed in 840 B.C. It wasn't until 722 B.C. that Israel was taken into captivity in Assyria. But they still existed even after then, didn't they? The nation, the people of God. And so you need to understand that this language that is used to describe this destruction was used oftentimes in that day. And don't forget, God had already commanded his people on how to treat foreigners in the land. Foreigners were those people who, who chose to live with Israel. The foreigners are those who, who decided that the God of Israel was going to be their God. And this is what it says about those who were foreigners in the land. In Exodus 22, verse 21, it says, You must not mistreat or oppress foreigners in any way. Remember, you yourselves were once foreigners in the land of Egypt. In Leviticus 19, verse 33, it says, Do not take advantage of foreigners who live among you in the land. Treat them like native-born Israelites and love them as you love yourself. And so it's obvious that God had stipulations in place for how the foreigners in the land were to live. And by the way, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 2, where God tells his people to utterly destroy the Canaanites, in verse 3, this is what God says, and do not intermarry with them. Now let me ask you a question. If they are utterly destroyed and there are no one living, is there any way to intermarry with them? Do you follow that? And so most people believe that this is a figure of speech, it's hyperbole that that was used throughout the ancient world to describe how Israel was to utterly remove the influence of the Canaanites from the land. And by the way, that's what we see here. Because God tells them that you need to remove their influence so that their detestable practices do not become your detestable practices. But I want you to understand, I want you to look at me. That may very well be. But, even if God did destroy every man and woman, every boy and girl, even every baby, God was justified in what he did. And so I want to give you three truths that we learn from this passage of Scripture that, that talks about this that I think can help us better understand God. First of all is this. God is patient with the wicked. You need to understand this about God, our Creator. God is patient with the wicked. He always has been. And He always will be. When God created Adam and Eve and placed them in this garden paradise and gave them one stipulation, one command, He said, do not eat from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you do, you will die. And they ate of the fruit. God showed them grace. God showed them mercy. They were cast from his presence. 
they begin to have to live in a fallen world. And yet we see God caring for them. God protecting them. And God even promising them in Genesis 3, redemption. They sinned and they sent the entire human race into sin. And yet God had patience with them. In Genesis chapter 6, we're told that the world had become so wicked and so violent that God was going to destroy the world. There was one righteous man, his name was Noah, and God told him to build an ark. And for 120 years, Noah began to build that ark. But you know what the Bible says he did for that 120 years? The Bible says that he preached to the people. He preached for them to repent and turn from their wickedness, turn from their violence. For 120 years, God warned them, judgment is coming, turn from your sin. God is patient with the wicked. When God said he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of the wickedness of those two cities, God then said, if you can find ten righteous men in these cities, I will spare the cities. The wickedness of these cities was so great, so horrific, that God was ready to rain down fire and brimstone on them. And yet, God said, if ten righteous men can be found, I will spare the city. When God called Jonah to, to preach in the city of Nineveh that, that destruction and judgment was coming and Jonah began to preach and the Ninevites repented and turned to God, what did God do? God spared them. God relented. God held back his judgment. Listen to me. God is always patient with the wicked. Now what about the Canaanites? Was God patient with them? Well, in Genesis 15, verse 16, God says this to Abraham. He says, after four generations, your descendants will return here into this land, Canaan. For the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their destruction. The Amorites were a, were a clan of Canaanites. And God is saying here that the Amorites are already wicked, but their wickedness does not warrant destruction. And so for 430 years, God was patient with the Canaanites. For 430 years, God gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to repent to turn from their wickedness, and yet they refused. 430 years. Our nation is less than 250 years old. For 430 years, God waited patiently for the Canaanites to turn from their sin, and yet they refused. And what you need to understand is God is still patient with the wicked today. He always has been, and he always will be. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. What is the promise? The promise of judgment. God isn't 
slow when it comes to his promise of judgment. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. What is God saying there? God is saying it's not my desire that anybody experience my judgment. I want everyone to repent and experience my grace and my mercy. I want the Ninevites to repent. I want the Canaanites to repent. I want the Amorites to repent. I want the Amalekites to repent. I want everyone to repent. Listen, God is patient with the wicked. And no one, no one, young or old, will be able to stand before God and say, God, you didn't give me a chance. God, you didn't give me fair warning. God, you weren't patient with me. If God is anything, God is patient. God is patient with the wicked. Second, God is fair in his judgment. Just as many people think that hell is overkill when it comes to God's judgment, many people think that his judgments on the Canaanites were overkill. But you need to understand that, that God's judgment of hell, just as it is as much a protection of heaven as it is a judgment to the wicked, God's judgment on the Canaanites was as much a protection of his people and his plan as it was judgment on the Canaanites. I want you to listen to what it says in Deuteronomy 20. This will prevent the people of the land from teaching you to imitate their detestable customs in the worship of their gods, which would cause you to sin deeply against the Lord your God. In other words, what God is saying is this. We are removing them from the land because if we don't, your nature is to mimic. Your nature is to imitate. Your nature is to Take on and do the detestable things that they are doing. And if you do, I will judge you just like I'm going to judge them. And that's the promise that God made to them. God said, if you do what the Canaanites are doing, I will judge you like I am judging the Canaanites. And God did. In Leviticus 18, it says this, Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, and it had listed a variety of ways. For the people I am driving out before you have defiled themselves in all of these ways because the entire land has become defiled. I am punishing the people who live there. I will cause the land to vomit them out. Wow. I mean, that's wickedness, isn't it? God's saying their wickedness has become so great that the land that they are living in is defiled. To the point that I, I must vomit them out of the land. You say, what were they doing? What, what was their wickedness that was so great that God spoke in these terms? Well, they practiced child sacrifice. They would burn their own sons and daughters to their gods. If you read Leviticus 18, you discover they were practicing insects and incest and homosexuality, bestiality, and every form of sexual perversion. And understand, those are sexual perversions. And what they were doing as they practiced those things is they were simply mimicking their pagan, demonic gods. 
The Canaanites were barbaric. They were violent. They were ruthless in their treatment of those who fought against them. And they worshipped idols. And these idols were simply demons, fallen angels who had rebelled against God. Now some of you will say, well, they didn't know any better. I mean, how would they have known any better? I mean, that's the way they were raised. That's what they had learned. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 31, it says it was by faith that Rahab the prostitute was not destroyed with the people in her city who refused to obey God. Did you get that? The people in Jericho were destroyed because they what? They refused to obey God. Is it that they did not know what God expected? It's not what it says. Did it say that they, they were judged because of their ignorance of what God wanted? It's not what the passage says. It says that they were judged, they were destroyed because they refused to obey God. Understand, God's judgment is always because we refuse to obey God. Don't use that excuse that you don't know any better. Doesn't cut it. And it's not going to cut it with God. God reveals himself to all people. To the point that we know what he expects. We know what he demands. We know what he requires. God is fair in his judgment. God is patient with the wicked. But there's a third truth you need to see in, in, in this story that unpacks God's judgment, and that's this God desires that all people from all nations become a part of his family. Did you get that? God desires that all people from all nations become a part of his family. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, the Lord said this to Abram He said, Leave your native country. And his native country was Babylon, the land of the Chaldees, the Ur. It was, it was a pagan land. Leave your pagan land, your pagan relatives, your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. And I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. And then listen to what it says. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Why did God call Abraham out of this pagan land? Why did God show himself to Abraham? He, he called Abraham out of his pagan land. He called Abraham out so that he could know the one true God so that Abraham and Abraham's ancestors would be a blessing to the world. Did you get that? God's desire has always been that the nation's know him when God freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt it says in Exodus chapter 12 verse 38 that a mixed multitude went with them it wasn't just the Israelites who left Egypt people from many nations went with Israel looking for this promised land that God had promised to them a mixed multitude in Joshua 6, verse 22, it says, Meanwhile, Joshua said to 
the two spies, keep your promise, go to the prostitute's house, bring her out along with all her family. The men who had been spies went in, brought out Rahab, her father, mother, brothers, and all the other relatives who were with her. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. So Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, and her relatives who were with her in the house. Why? Because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. In other words, what this passage is saying is that as of the writing of this book, Rahab and her family and her ancestors are still living among us. Now, now what did God tell his people to do? Totally destroy the Canaanites. Everyone, man, woman, child. And yet, here's Rahab, a Canaanite, who experiences the grace and the mercy of God. Why? Because she responded in faith to the God of the Bible. God's desire is never to bring judgment. God's desire is always to bring mercy and grace. But that's not where the story ends. And so here's Rahab, this prostitute, who is servicing this military outpost, who realizes that the God of the Israelites is the one true God, and she by faith trusts in that God. She is spared. She experiences God's grace, God's mercy. But then we turn to the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 1, we read these words. This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Then it goes on, and in verse 5 it says, Solomon was the father of Boab, whose mother was what? Rahab. This Canaanite. that was set apart for destruction, who experienced the grace and the mercy of God, is in the family tree of Jesus. Well, do you see? God's desire is never to bring judgment. Judgment is a natural result of our rebellion. But God's desire isn't to judge. God's desire is to show mercy. God's desire is to give us grace. God's desire is to bring us back into the family. And listen, He will. The Bible tells us that at the end of time, there will be people from every nation, every tribe, every tongue around the throne. You know what that means? There will be Canaanites there. There will be Amalekites there. There will be Moabites there. There will be Jebusites there. There will be termites there. Well, I don't think there will be termites. There will be people from every tribe there. Listen to what it says in Revelation 5. They sing a, a song a new song with these words, you're worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it, for you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. Listen, none of us, none of us 
are natural born Israelites here today. We have all been adopted into his family. I don't think none of any of you are natural born Israelites. If you are, come and see me. I think that we're all Gentiles who have been grafted into the family, who have been adopted into the family, and one day people from every nation will gather around that throne. But listen, we will not only worship the Bible says we will be a kingdom of priests. The Bible says we will rule and reign with him. There will be Canaanites ruling and reigning with God. In Revelation 7, it says, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and they held palm branches in their hands and they were shouting with a mighty shout, salvation comes from our God. Sits on the throne and from the Lamb. God is patient with the wicked. But God will judge and when He judges, He will be fair in His judgment. But listen, God's desire isn't to judge you. God's desire is to redeem you and save you. God's desire is to take your shame and remove it. God's desire is to take your sin and cleanse you. God's desire is to make you a brand new person. And regardless of your past, regardless of whether you were a wicked Canaanite or an awful Moabite or some other hideous race, or nation, or tribe. God's desire is to restore you. To make you his child. But he's not going to force his love on you. He never has. Never will. He freely offers it. He shows us how much he loves us at the cross. But in the end, he gives us the right to choose. Just like the Canaanites in Jericho who weren't a part of Rahab's family, we can choose to refuse to obey. We can choose to refuse to accept the grace that is freely offered to us. Why would we? God created you and God loves you and God has a plan for you. Don't miss it. I want you to bow your head. I want you to close your eyes. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. If you're here. And you've been living your life apart from God. I want to encourage you this morning. Just humble yourself to God. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your rebellion. Ask Him to save you. Turn from your sin and trust Him and let Him do what only He can do. Give you a fresh start. Give you a new beginning. Give you an eternal hope. That's what He wants to do. Let Him. Let Him. If you're here and that's what you need to do this morning, then I want to encourage you to pray this prayer right here, right now. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me. I am a sinner. I'm a rebel. I'm no better than the Canaanites. 
though my sins may be different. I don't deserve your love. I deserve your wrath. But you have chosen to love me. Oh God, forgive me. Jesus, I believe you died for me. I believe you rose from the dead, defeating sin on my behalf. Save me. Change me. Make me new. This morning, Jesus, I'm giving my life to you. I'm yours. From this moment on, Jesus, give me the power and give me the desire to live for you and to serve you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me.